Here we are. We started this study at the beginning of July, and this book was just the right length, wasn't it? And so now here we are at the end of summer. It's almost like it was planned that way. And I want to encourage you to open in your copy of God's Word to the book of Esther as we conclude our look at this book. We'll be reading from chapter 9, verse 20 through the end, which is chapter 10, verse 3. Esther chapter 9, verse 20 through 10, verse 3. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers, the flowers... They fade, but the word of 
stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for how it schools us in providence and how it calls us to question what kind of deliverance we're seeking and what kind of deliverer we will receive. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we contemplate these closing verses and as we reflect upon their significance for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said before, we read the text. Today is our final look at this book, at least our final look for a while. Um, and it's, it's been a unique book to study, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's not only absent the mention of God, uh, it, it absents any mention of real religious observances. They talk about feasts and lamenting and stuff, but, but it's pretty unique. There's no mention of praying. There's no mention of, of any of the religious stuff that the Jews are so famous for. It's almost as if God is absent from this book, from this episode of history. And yet, of course, we know that he's not. In fact, his, his presence is highlighted by the fact that he's not mentioned precisely where you're looking most for him. When, he, when Mordecai speaks to Esther in chapter 4, and, and it's almost like God is there. It's like God has been intentionally erased from the dialogue. So we, we, we see his presence. We're called to see him through the eyes of faith. As we look at his work and his role in history through providence, this book is all about providence. How God governs this world in such a way that everything tends towards its ultimate goal and purpose. He is the great field marshal of history. And we saw how his control is so absolute so mysterious, so marvelous, that it didn't just include the, the moments of here and now, but how God had arranged and set in motion things years before that would only find the realization of their purpose in a moment that we encounter in time. God governs history, and he orchestrates history, and he's doing so for a purpose. So this book is all about how God works. How we see God working in ways that just don't even take into use human instruments. How God keeps Ahasuerus awake one night. How that, that sleepless night really is the hinge on which this book turns. If that hadn't happened, then nothing else really would have fit. That sleepless night, God keeping Ahasuerus awake through some means is the hinge on which this book turns. Think about that. A small little detail, a man couldn't sleep, is what led to all these events where the Jews were delivered from annihilation. That's incredible. 
So God works in ways like that where it just so happens that when the king can't sleep, his, his, he decides to have something read to him instead of any of the innumerable other activities he could have done. It just so happens that they read the account of Mordecai saving his life and getting no reward for it. It just so happens that Haman is so zealous to kill Mordecai that he's like pacing out in the hallway. All that just so happens. And that's oftentimes how we think of God working in providence, where, where it, things just fall into place mysteriously. But we also see God working in providence through Esther's involvement. The people needed a mediator. If Esther had not identified with the people, they had no hope. She had to put her neck on the line for her people. And, and we see in that principle of identification, Christ's priestly work for us. Where if he didn't identify with us and become one of us, then there would have been no substitutionary sacrifice. And so we see that the need for a mediator is real and true. And we, and we understand this even in our own lives where, where sometimes what is needed is someone with a connection to the person with power who has a voice to speak on the behalf of those who do not. But then we saw last week how God works in providence sometimes by saying, all right, you need to be an active participant in the unfolding of my plan for you. Remember, God didn't just aneurysm all the enemies of the people to death. The people had one chance to stay alive, and that was to take up arms and defend themselves. And that chance came from God. So, providence is mysterious. And in the outworking of God's plan of redemption, it has vexed God's people for years at how oftentimes in history, things are messy. A lot of God's revealed will gets, gets violated in the process, but yet God is sovereign. Even in the violating of what he says that he wants us to do, when, when sinners violate God's commands, nonetheless, God's overarching control and guidance remains untarnished and intact. So it would be a gross abuse to walk away from this book thinking that the moral lesson is since God is absolutely sovereign, then I can live however I want and it's going to just work out. Okay? The lesson is not don't be the consummate go-alonger like Esther is for most of her life. It's not don't act like a person of God and just act like a whatever and then in some grand display do the right thing and it'll all be okay. No, that's not what this book is saying. This book is saying that in the midst of all the trouble and uncertainty, difficulty, all of the frustrated existences we so oftentimes experience, the heartache, the hurt, the fear, everything, in spite of all of that, dear Christian, God is in control. And he will raise up someone. He will make use of someone. And he will ensure 
that all of his perfect plans for you are fulfilled. Not one promise to you will fail. Jesus and his lordship ensures that the church will prevail. And you, dear brother, dear sister, you will receive the inheritance which Christ has secured for you. And nothing, not even the schemes of the most powerful, the most connected, i.e. the Hamans of the world, can keep you from it. So walk with confidence and hope. Dare I say walk with joy and thanksgiving all the days of your life. Even in the midst of a political circumstance that seems pretty topsy-turvy. I'll tell you, I don't think our political situation even threatens to be like the political situation they had. I, I, I rejoice at the fact that we don't have the government of Persia over us, where the king is so flippant in his regard for human life that, that, that the only reason he cares about saving the Jews is because it threatens his wife. I mean, otherwise they would have been gone. Isn't that horrible? But that's the way the kingdoms of the world, unfortunately, so often operate. Now, as we conclude our look at this book, it's important to note that right here in the, conclu- the rest of chapter 9, you have what was the immediate point of the book. To explain the origination, the establishment of the holiday of Purim. And the Jews to this day pra- celebrate Purim, don't they? I don't know if you've ever been to a synagogue gathering. Um, I, I had to attend a synagogue as a, as a school project. Uh, yes, you're allowed to visit. Uh, just like we will, people can visit our churches and not be a Christian, you can visit a synagogue. And in the chaplaincy, I knew some rabbis, and, and they get into Purim. So, like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but on, on the first night, uh, this is how they, they get the kids involved, especially. But when in a war zone, even the, the adults will do it. But when they read the whole book of Esther, they, they read the entire book. Uh, whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they have noisemakers and they boo and they hiss. Whenever, so, so the reader slows down because, you know, he mentions Haman and there's like 20 seconds of, of boo and hissing and, and, and twirling noisemakers. And it's a sight to see that they take ownership. What was this? Nearly 2,500 years ago, an incident that happened. And they understand that they belong to a people. And, and I think in that point, there's something for us to consider too. But so this book establishes the historicity and the, the, the origination of Purim the holiday. And then it concludes, these last three verses cause a lot of people to scratch their head. Chapter 10 is three verses. And it's basically saying how great Mordecai was. So is Mordecai the, the hero of the story? Well, if you're counting names, counting times, Esther is mentioned 55 times, and Mordecai is mentioned 52. So if you think about the book, 
in one sense, it's Mordecai's uh, faithfulness. It's Mordecai, Mordecai has the initiative. He's the one who lights the fire under Esther. And then as soon as he gets a position where he can do something, he, he sort of takes the lead. But Esther really does. She's not some dummy who has to have her hand held. Once, once, she, once she goes all in, she, she comes up with a pretty clever plan to, to get the king to go along. So you could really say this is the, this is the incredible adventures of Esther and Mordecai, um, if you wanted to title it. They're a dynamic duo. And I think together, and in their own separate ways, we have snapshot pictures of the work of Christ foreshadowing to us what Jesus will do perfectly. But the thing that I really think uh, drives home the context that provides the ongoing relevance of this book is the verse that is oftentimes overlooked. We read it, and it's just like, why is this even in here? I mean, who cares? What, what's this about? Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1. What do we read? These simple words. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlines of the sea. Coastlands of the sea. Big deal, right? Why is that even in here? Well, you know what Ben Franklin said about death and taxes. Here's another king thinking about a way to make money, taxes. He taxes everything. But, but here's the point of that verse. The bureaucracy of the empire just kept rolling along. Think about this. We've just experienced what for the Jews was an incredibly dramatic situation. I mean, this has been a year that most of them would never forget. At the start of the year, they learned they're all going to die. And they're not privy, the average common Jew, to what's going on behind the palace walls. So up until the, up until the letter from Mordecai gets published, saying that they can defend themselves, they are all certain that they're going to die. But then a few months before they get word that they get to have a chance. So they spend the next several months training and, and, and doing whatever they had to do to get ready. And then there's like this two-day civil war. And the bureaucracy just keeps rolling along. Like it didn't even matter. To the world, the 75,000 killed just didn't even cause a blip. The empire didn't skip a beat. That's, that's kind of how life is. Something dramatic, something exciting happens and life just goes on. No one cares. Ladies, kind of like that retreat yesterday. You had a great time Friday and Saturday. You went home to crying kids. Grouchy husband, bills to pay, messages from your boss. The world didn't care. Isn't that just how it goes? The world doesn't care. It just, life keeps going on. But for the Jews, life continued. They had to pay their taxes. Life continued just as before but not quite the same. 
You see, what the world does, that's, that's up to the world. Every person is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what, what Hashuerus or, or, or any person in that empire did, that's between them ultimately and God. And, but the Jews proceeded throughout history. They proceeded forth from that moment with a new normal. And I know we all hate that phrase. It's a, it's a phrase we've come to despise because we don't want a new normal. We want normal. We, want, we don't even want to say old normal. We just want normal, right? We don't want this new to become our normal. But there's a sense in which if people are going to survive and thrive, we have to embrace the reality of whatever context we have. That's just a little fact. And then you find a way to manipulate your environment. That's what humans do that animals don't do. And, you know, all that stuff... But they proceeded forth with a new normal. They embraced the, the difficulties, the challenges, the hardships, the frustrations, the politically tenuous nature of life in this world. They faced all that a little different than they did before. You see, first, they had a fresh reminder of God's unfailing love for them. A fresh reminder of his undying commitment to be with them, to be a shield to them, to be a hedge of protection before, behind, and around them. And second, they faced the future with a friend in high places. That's the point of Mordecai being mentioned at the end. Now they have a friend who's the prime minister. And so they have a little more confidence as they walk that they're not going to be subject to a death order at the whim of a tyrant. They have a friend in high places. So I think those two things that motivated the Jews as they walked forward from that point, I think it calls us to three particular things. First, I think it calls us to remember. Remember God's saving work on behalf of his people. In the Bible, the Exodus is by far the the. Example par excellence of God's saving work in history. What he does to deliver his people from Pharaoh, to release them from bondage in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, it, it is the example par excellence. It's the supreme picture of redemption in the Old Testament. But that didn't stop them from remembering God's deliverance from extermination in the here and now. And so they establish a day of feasting or days of feasting. It's important to remember that as human beings, we need reminding. We think we have good memories. I know all of you think you have a really good memory. My memory is not as good as it was. My, my short term sometimes, I, and 
if I get more than a few days even away from it, my, my memory starts being shaped by my perspective. And so I'll repeat back what someone said, and what they said is more what I heard, which is more what I thought. You know what I'm talking about. We need reminding. We need to be reminded of our story, the story that God is writing in providence. We need reminding of God's faithfulness to us. Lest we forget. Because without fail, what happens is we experience many, many wondrous providences. But the memory of them erases from our minds the moment hardship comes to town. And it's in those moments when we need the reminding. So you see throughout the, the early Old Testament period especially that wherever they went, whatever they did, they're always erecting these little monuments. That's a good practice. We can write things down. We can record things. Do whatever you need to do. But I want to challenge you. You want to find a way to change your disposition from, from pessimistic to optimistic? Start writing down as a good providence from God whenever something favorable happens to you. Little, big, write it down. and Get a little journal or something. Go to Walmart and buy a cheap one for, or, or wherever. Just... Write it down and, and read it to yourself. Remind yourself. It will blow your mind. And of course, we need constant reminding of the biggest things of all. Because even though they're big and consequential, we still nonetheless forget. And so when our Lord rose from the dead, he was dead. And he came alive. That's awesome. Time itself was reordered around that event. Even when worldlings seek to deny Christ's presence and by dropping the B from the C and adding an E and dropping AD for CE for common era, it's still they can't escape the ordering of time around the person of Christ. And God changed the day in which we worship to serve as a perpetual reminder and celebration of that fact. That this is the day when your redemption was complete. And so we worship each Sunday, the first day of the week, every week until time is no more. As a reminder... So, as a church, we remember what Jesus has done. It's right that as a congregation, we celebrate the specific providences that God writes into our particular story. It is good and fitting that as a family, you remember, find a way to record what God has done in your family 
as he weaves his tapestry of grace together, but then as individuals as well. What has God done? Remember it. Because remembering helps us develop our sense of community, our sense of belonging. There is a purpose for remembering. It's not just to be a historical aficionado. You see, when you remember what God has done, we are to then reflect, reflect on how God and his faithfulness to his word to keep his promise, to preserve, protect, and provide for you. How God has been faithful. And so what do we do with the remembrance? Well, reflect upon it. How then should we live in the moment Does not a recollection of God's faithfulness over all these years? Think about it. Where have you been? How God has guided you as you've made your travelings in this world. As you've gone through all of the life that you've lived thus far. And God has been faithfully with you every step of the way. So then when you face an uncertain moment now. Should not that recollection of God's faithfulness inspire our devotion, our gratitude, our faithfulness or loyalty, and dare I say, our obedience? God's been faithful out of gratitude for all that He's done, out of trust that, you know what, He's reliable, He's not going to drop the ball out of loyalty. You know, this God who's been so faithful to me, how how can I slap him in the face and, and, and act like he's of no consequence? Well, all that stuff should compel and motivate and inspire our faithfulness and hope and joy in the present. But then as you're going and you're reflecting and and you're engaging the present in view of what God's done for you in the past, you can rejoice. Why? Because Mordecai here is a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of, get ready for this big theological concept here, the mediatorial kingship of Christ. You see, Jesus has ascended. And, and, and too often we fail to mention the importance of his ascension and his session. He came alive, which proves that God accepted his sacrifice. But then God has taken him into heaven and God has seated him and he is ruling. He is enthroned as king. And it is a mistake to think that Jesus simply rules the church. He is Lord of the church. But Jesus rules all things. And he governs all things for the good of his sheep. And out of all the nations, he will call his people from wherever they are. And he will make them into one flock. And he will ensure that none for whom he died will be lost. And that everyone who calls on his name will in fact be sanctified. Jesus rules all things, governing all things 
He's governing Halley's Comet right now, wherever it may be in space. And he governs all things for the good of his people because he loves you. So, you can walk into a lion's den rejoicing because you serve the one who will never leave you nor forsake you and will ensure that every promise he's made to you will come to pass. So this passage causes us to remember, to reflect, and to rejoice. And so I think that's really, when you sum it all up, what Esther's about. God's providence in history. And yes, in his mysterious way, he will use people who may be only marginally part of our body, but that's beside the point. Whom God uses is whom God uses, But for you and for me, remember, God is doing wondrous things in history. Reflect that what God has done should inspire present faith. And we can walk with joy, knowing that he will indeed make sure everything good comes to pass. So Esther's there to increase our faith, our confidence, our devotion, our joy, and the one who is most satisfying. Let's pray.